You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Well, unfortunately, things continue to seem to be spinning out of control in Syria, as anyone who was listening to my conversation with Syrian Girl earlier this week would have gotten uh, to know in great detail and depth. Unfortunately, things continue to be progressing there faster and faster. So tonight on Corbett Report Radio, we're going to be delving into the latest on Syria and some of the the news that's making headlines right now about Syria, because once again, this is just really quickly devolving uh, situation over there. And as we've talked about many times before on this broadcast, it's a situation that unfortunately does present that that possibility of a wider regional conflict, which could end up being a worldwide conflict. So it always does really uh, serve our interests to follow what's going on there, especially now as things are progressing so quickly. So tonight on Corbett Report Radio, we're going to be going over the latest headlines on Syria, and in the latter half of the program, we're going to be joined by James Evan Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com. And right off the bat, let's take our first story tonight from CIA News, I mean VOA News, Voice of America at VOANews.com, with this story hot off the presses. And then quits as Syrian envoy over disunity and fighting. And this story says the joint United Nations Arab League envoy for Syria, Kofi Annan, announced Thursday that he will leave his post on August 31st, saying that increased militarization in Syria and disunity in the international community have hampered his ability to carry out his work. And what can we say about this story other than surprise, surprise? Was there any other end possible for this Anon Peace Envoy endeavor? I think the the real ploy behind the entire UN peace process in Syria was an attempt to try to galvanize world international public opinion on the uh, the need to transition away from Assad's government in Syria in the same way that they did for Libya back last year. And they were hoping for an, a relatively quick and a relatively pain, painless process. But it has not turned out that way as Russia, now under the the helm of Putin, is not going to just roll over and uh, and let the NATO forces gut that country like they gutted Libya, especially because Syria is, does, of course, have close strategic ties to Russia. And because of that, the, uh, the Anon process was doomed from the beginning. What kind of peace process was this, anyways, with Kofi Annan out there supposedly heading this, this United Nations observer team and trying to bring both sides to the table, whatever that means? What sides are really at the table anyway? I don't think anyone has a clear picture of who the opposition is, but we do know that it's comprised mostly of outside forces who are funded by outside countries and powers, more on which later. But uh, once again, this is just a sham of a peace process, and now that it's officially ending, I don't think anyone should be surprised at this outcome. In fact, I think it's what we've all been predicting since the very beginning couple of other interesting nuggets in this story. Uh, for example, um, there's a quote from some Turkish officials, and they, they, they talk about Turkey and Syria have large Kurdish populations, and uh, Turkey is likely to use the Kurdistan Workers' Party, a U.S.-designated terrorist group, as a pretext to interfere militarily in Syria. 
And uh, this uh, observer also notes that the rebel fighters known as the Free Syrian Army have established a corridor from the Turkish border to the northern Syrian city of Aleppo, potentially opening a road for Turkish military intervention. So I think we have to understand that military intervention is still very much on the table and, in fact, is already happening to a certain limited degree. But it's not likely to be NATO boots on the ground, or at least not overtly so. It's likely going to be uh, Turkey and along with, of course, their ragtag band of terrorist fighters who have been assembled from across uh, the uh, the Muslim world because this is a fight that has a lot to do with the Sunni-Shia split, as we were talking about earlier on the program uh, with Syrian Girl. But let's hold it right there. We're going to come back, continue going over the latest headlines about the Syrian crisis. If you'd like to get in on tonight's program, 1-800-313-9443. We'll be back right after this. All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we are breaking down the latest news headlines about Syria and what's going on in that war-torn country as, unfortunately, the uh, explosions continue to happen, the people continue to die, and it continues to be used as basically a square on the chessboard that uh, both sides of this conflict are vying for, and the question really is what sides are at play here. Well, uh, just picking up from that uh, that article that we were talking about in the first segment, and then quits as Syrian envoy over disunity and fighting. Just one more thing to note about that, an interesting little quote near the bottom of the article. It says, quote, analyst Nadim Shahadi with London's Chatham House says there is another possible and preferable scenario. There is the possibility of a diplomatic solution, whereby the Russians are convinced to step in and ensure the transition. In fact, this would be the preferable one. All right, well, uh, that is a particularly interesting little quotation because I think that is really the the nugget of what uh, this all represents here is the imperial hubris of the people who are arguing that if only Russia would step in and do what we want and ensure the transition away from the government that we don't want to a new one, then everything will be better. That's the real possibility for solution here. And of course, it raises the question, well, who the hell are these people to come in and say who should be transitioning into or out of power in Syria? That is clearly up to the Syrian people, and it shouldn't really have anything to do with Russia or any outside force. But the uh, again, the hubris of saying that, well, if only Russia would do exactly what we want to have have happened, that's what we call a solution. Well, of course, that is what they would call a solution, isn't it? And for people who don't know what London's Chatham House refers to, I will just simply exhort you to go and look that up. And rest assured, we will be talking about that further on uh, Corbett Report in the future as we expose Chatham House and the people behind it and the agenda behind it. But at any rate, uh, let's move on with the next headline. This one from the Sydney Morning Herald, just uh, again hot off the press earlier today. Syrian rebel execution could be war crime. Human rights group protest shocking video of free Syrian army rebels carrying out an execution in Aleppo. Now, for people who didn't catch my conversation with Syrian girl earlier this week, we were talking about Aleppo and the battle that's raging there. Uh, a, a, a city that has been universally recognized as a stronghold for Assad. Uh, there, uh, It tends to be a place where Assad supporters are, not people who are sympathetic with the rebellion. So uh, when it started to become the latest flashpoint, it's, it was evident that this city was being really infiltrated, invaded, swarmed by the outside um, rebels who were coming into the city in order to stir things up and to try to take over the city, really. 
And uh, the latest indication of what's really going on there comes from this video. If you haven't seen it yet, I will uh, suggest you do so. I will... Uh, I'll post the link to it, and I, I'll show a little bit on the video podcast. I won't won't show the uh, the graphic details of it, but yes, um, people in bloodied shirts uh, being paraded up to a wall and then uh, fired on with machine gun fire for a good 30, 40 seconds of straight machine gun fire. Um, it's it's quite a horrific thing to behold, and unfortunately, this is the type of thing that happens in these conflicts and. Wow, surprise, surprise, the rebels are doing these types of horrible things. But I thought they were the wonderful, happy, freedom-fighting protesters who were just marching with signs and, and asking Assad, please, please give us our country back. But Assad kept killing them brutally. Well, it turns out that that idea might have been a lie. Of course, we all were already knew that that was a lie. But unfortunately, uh, it's only just getting out into the mainstream media. At the very least, at least it is getting out into the mainstream media. So let's read a little bit from this article. Once again, Syrian rebel execution could be war crime. Syrian insurgents' execution of several members of a prominent Aleppo family with close ties to the government of President Bashar al-Assad, captured on video and circulated widely, appeared to constitute a war crime, according to human rights activists. While the details remained murky, the killings appeared to stem from the pitched battles that have raged for days in Aleppo, the largest city in Syria, and its commercial hub. Rebels accused members of the Bari family, a large Sunni clan well-known for suppressing opposition to Mr. Assad, of killing 15 anti-government fighters after initially pledging to let them pass through an area the Bari family controlled. Video posted by anti-government activists showed more than a dozen men, some with bloodied faces and torn clothing, who are said to be members or associates of the clan. Held in what appeared to be a room at a school, they were made to state their names and accused of being pro-government militiamen known as Shabia. The man sitting in the center, described as a leader of the group, said his name was Ali Zain al-Abidinbari, also known as Zainal. Another video posted to YouTube on Tuesday appeared to show several of the men, including an older man, bleeding from his face and wearing only black underwear, being led by rebels with assault rifles onto an Aleppo street where a crowd had formed. The men, prisoners of the rebel fighters, were forced to sit along the wall of a local school, decorated with a painting mural of Mickey Mouse, SpongeBob SquarePants, and other cartoon characters kicking a soccer ball. The free Syrian army forever, the crowd chanted, stepping on Assad's head. Then, seemingly without warning, someone among the armed rebels fired a single shot. That set off a hail of bullets that continued for nearly 45 seconds. Many in the crowd, including the videographer, backed away from the ad hoc firing squad. As a cloud of dust appeared, the lifeless bodies of the captured men could be seen. A reporter with Al Jazeera in Aleppo identified one of the dead as a local politician, Zainal al-Bari. Well, again, I'll let you continue reading through that, but I think you get at the very least from the description of that and in more graphic detail from the video, if you choose to go and watch that, that this was uh, a straight-out execution of people who had submitted themselves, uh, who were clearly not, uh, were clearly prisoners. And because uh, the conflict has reached the point where the uh, rules of war have been invoked so that uh, any such execution is a war crime, then obviously this is... a uh, cold, hard, documented proof of the war crime of these free Syrian army rebels. So we do actually have Human Rights Watch and these other organizations which have been cheerleaders for the intervention insofar as they give cover by uh, trying to, to play up everything that the Assad government is accused of, not even 
actually proven to have done, but everything they're accused of, and never examining what the uh, rebels are doing, well, to their credit, they are actually calling this a war crime and saying that uh, this is absolutely shocking and uh, trying to condemn it. Well, absolutely right. Uh, that This is how these types of conflicts play out, and it's not a good thing, and this is why we don't want to see this at all. And unfortunately, the mainstream media is just finding out just now that these uh, executions and, and other types of atrocities are going on. <coughs> I have much more to say on that, including uh, what happened or didn't happen in Hula with that uh, that so-called massacre and what really happened there still being uh, just completely and utterly misrepresented and the media having moved on after that uh, story started to fall apart. But I'll have more to say on that in a forthcoming uh, piece that I'm working on for GRTV, so stay tuned for that. Of course, you can find all of my videos at CorbettReport.com as they come out, and I suggest you sign up for the RSS feed so you don't miss any of them. But let's move on to another story, this one from BBC News, again from the Department of the Bleeding Obvious, but at least it is being said. Syria conflict, jihadists' role growing. When peaceful protests demanding regime change in Syria erupted 16 months ago, there were no signs of the presence of jihadist groups on the ground other than the claims of the regime. In reaction to the violent measures the regime has implemented against peaceful protesters, some Syrians have resorted to arms. In this context, the Free Syrian Army was formed from defecting army soldiers in order to protect protesters and to fight against the Bashar al-Assad regime, according to their statements. Simultaneously, however, jihadists, those committed to establishing an Islamic state by violent means, have started to be seen on the battlefield in Syria, which became a highly streamed topic on the jihadist online forums. The FSA is scrutinizing jihadists in Syria very closely, considering them a real threat after the Assad regime falls, according to a senior FSA officer. Colonel Ahmad Fad al-Nima, the head of the Military Revolutionary Council in Daraa, told the BBC, jihadists would pose a real threat in the next stage of our society and our, our, our Arab and Western friends. Colonel Nima, like many opposition figures, insists that the jihadist role and presence in Syria are limited, but reports indicate an increase in jihadist activity on the ground. Well, once again, I say this is from the Department of the Bleeding Obvious, because as we've been talking about for the last 16 months, of course there is that outside Islamist element that has been brought into the country to fight this war, this conflict, this terrorist campaign, which is really what it amounts to. And, uh, of course, the BBC is still spouting the same old rhetoric that... Uh, that this was all about peaceful protests, but but just somewhere along the line, this Free Syrian Army formed, and it started to to defend the the protesters, the peaceful protesters. Well, once again, that's a load of hogwash. There's been violent uh, uh, terrorist acts being committed against the the Assad government since the beginning of this conflict, and that's again not to say that I'm a big supporter of Assad or I think he's great or I don't think that the Syrian people shouldn't overthrow him if they want to. That's completely and utterly their purview. But this once again goes. To to show that the very heart of the matter is the outside intervention that is making this possible. The Free Syrian Army is being supported and staged and funded and trained and equipped from within Turkey across the border with uh, NATO complicity and with the, uh, the help of smuggled supplies that are coming in through Iraq and are being supplied by Saudi Arabia and Qatar. That was, uh, that was even confirmed by the BBC in February of this year. So once again, we know this is a completely foreign agitated event and to whatever extent they're does exist legitimate opposition to, Syria, to the Syrian government within Syria, 
what's happening there right now is not a representation of that. It is not a spontaneous outgrowth of that. It is something that has been stirred up from the outside. Uh, Assad and his government have been saying this since day one, and they've been derided as conspiracy theorists in the mainstream media like the BBC. Oh, that's just a crazy conspiracy theory, outside forces. But of course, now, as it's uh, becoming absolutely undeniable, they're just letting that piece of information in through the door. Oh yeah, by the way, there's tons of jihadists there. We don't know how they got there or who they're being funded by, but but they're there. So once again, uh, conspiracy theorists turn out to actually be correct. But you'll never hear that uh, particular headline in BBC News. All right, let's take another break. We'll be right back with more after this. Once again, 1-800-313-9443. Love to hear your thoughts on all this. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Tonight we are going over the latest on Syria, and we are getting prepared for James Evan Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com, who will be joining us after the break. But right now we do have a caller on the line, and once again, the lines are open at 1-800-313-9443. Also, you can tweet your questions or comments to Corbett Report, uh, at Corbett Report. But let's go to the lines. We have Owen in Iowa. So, uh, Owen, thanks for joining us tonight. It's actually Florida, not not Iowa, but that that's fine. I I am curious. I, I've there's a what I've not heard a lot of speculation on is why why Syria has become a target. I think back to statements by General Wesley Clark, for example, who said that they're you know amongst a policy coup that. He had come across information indicating a, a plan to destabilize the Middle East, with uh, starting with seven countries and and uh, so on. And yeah, then I think about Africa, which is probably one of the world's greatest sources for resources. And there's a, a, a proximity there. You know, we kind of started doing this stuff, and and you know, there's a little in Egypt, then Libya, now it's in Syria. And I, I have to admit, I have trouble piecing together what the master plan is. And I wouldn't mind hearing some feedback on, you know, whatever speculation you have on that and uh, why you all, uh, why you think the Syria in particular is being targeted right now, other than it being a prelude to a possible invasion of Iran. Well, that's a, a very good question, and I think it is important that we continue to reiterate that it has a lot to do with the, uh, the the regional politics in the case of Syria. I think with Egypt and with Libya, we had a slightly different case. I think that the uh, the attempt to use the R2P, the responsibility to protect as the cover for the military intervention, is somewhere along the lines of what we're seeing in Syria. But I think the reason for what we're seeing in Syria has to do, as you say, with uh, the prelude to Iran, because of course Sy- Syria is a key strategic asset to Iran. It's also, uh, I think, important to note that as Syrian Girl pointed out on the program the other night, and we talked about in some depth, Syria has been traditionally in under the Assad government, a secular government. And what is happening here is that the Sunni a majority in the country is, uh, is getting excited about the possibility of coming to power. And uh, what we see is that the most extreme elements of that Islamic uh, Sunni, Wahhabist Sunni type of uh, uh, radical Sunnism is being stirred up in this conflict with 
which right now they're they're basically saying, well, this is probably going to lead to to bigger problems down the line when things take over. So as we were just talking about in that BBC article, Syria conflict, jihadists role growing, they're talking about, well, this is probably going to be a problem when this is all over because we have these radical jihadists who are basically the ones who are doing the fighting here and they're probably going to want a piece of the pie. So in that way, it's uh, actually quite similar to what happened in Libya because, of course, we saw with the uh, the Gaddafi government was uh, very much not a, a part of that that radical Islam, which unfortunately, once again, is, is taking over there. And it happened with Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood. So we've seen this, and it, this isn't anything new. This has been going on since at the very least the 1950s when pan-Arab nationalism was coming to power in Egypt with Nasser, etc. And uh, that was overthrown by the creation of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was originally being propped up by the Eisenhower government. So once again, that's an important piece of the puzzle to all of this. I guess I would only, uh, the only other thing I would ask right now would be, how do you think the U.S. disinformation campaign gets away with this kind of nonsense? For example, we were so passionately concerned with with the citizens of, of Libya and human rights, but, you know, now that we've gotten the, the, our piece of the pie, we don't care about that anymore. Now Syria is the, the new pie, and, and we're very concerned with the the poor protesters there and and so on. Uh, meanwhile, while the rebels or al-Qaeda or whatever you want to call them are probably torturing citizens there, um, it... Exactly right. I mean, it, is, it beggars the imagination how the public can be led along on a string like this, especially when you start to think of, well, what about all of the other vicious dictators and regimes around the world that nobody cares about at all because they're not being told to care about them? So no one really cares about what's happening in Zimbabwe, for example, because Zimbabwe doesn't matter. It's not resource important. It's not geostrategically important. It's just somewhere in the middle of Africa. No one could even point it out on a map. So no one cares about and violence that's happening there. Just a, a final a Final question, and I don't know if this can be answered, but I am very suspicious that even something as, as far as the Middle East still has some connection to to Africa, where I believe China has great prospects, and their policies are far more efficient than U.S. IMF abusive both uh, nonsense policies. And uh, you know, the the Africans are obviously more willing to do business with someone who would give something in return, hence China than us who want to bend them over and make them say thank you. So, you know, I, I, I just can't help but to see some of this tying into a long-term strategy against a, a, a Chinese occupation of, of Africa. Do you have any anything Absolutely. to say? I think that's an important piece of the puzzle of what's happening in Africa, and I think that was what the creation of AFRICOM was really explicitly about. And uh, I have a lot more to say on that. In fact, I'm going to be writing about this topic, the African oil uh, in particular, in my latest uh, editorial for the International Forecaster, so people can get that by subscribing to my newsletter at quarterreport.com. That'll be coming out uh, this Saturday. So, Owen, thank you for the questions and comments. Um, we're going to take another short breather, but we'll be back. We're going to get James Evan Pilato on the line to go over the food world order. So everyone just hang tight. We'll be right back after these messages.
All right, friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Just uh, picking up from what we were talking about before the break there, uh, talking about what's happening in Syria, I just wanted to mention one other article that I think is important for people to know uh, about. Again, it shouldn't be surprising to anyone who's had their eye on what's going on in Syria for any length of time, but we have this from Reuters. Exclusive Obama authorizes secret U.S. support for Syrian rebels. And this is uh, talking about a memorandum that Reuters has become privy to where basically Obama has signed off on CIA intervention in Syria. And uh, we've known about this for some time, but at least here it is in black and white coming from Rothschild Reuters itself. So uh, there you go. I guess there's no disputing that. Anyway, a very important story. I hope people will get that and circulate it widely. But while we're uh, talking about violence, bloodshed, and what's happening in Syria, let's transition completely and we're going to bring up our old friend james evan Pilato. of course he is available at foodworldorder.com and every thursday night in the latter half of the broadcast we start talking about that website and the latest stories that are posted up there from the world of food health and the environment so james evan Pilato, thank you so much for coming on today Thanks so much, man. I, I appreciate it. Your your you know involvement of of media monarchy in the Corbett Report Kingdom is is invaluable, and I appreciate you know all the time and all the work that that you and I get to do together. I just looked at Google News, which I always use as kind of the arbiter of what's the mainstream you know memes going on in in the news here, at least in the West. And it's only now, in probably the last half hour, has the story in Syria taken the top slot diplomacy hits dead end in syria finally removing what has been the top of google news for what seems like days and that's the chick-fil-a controversy which we'll reference at the end of this episode when we reach the binge and purge but james let's begin on food world order with a story that may have been better suited for cyberspace war but it's it, it all fits in the media monarchy kingdom controlling monkey brains and behavior with light. And this comes from Cryptagon via Fizz.org. Researchers reporting online on July 26th in Current Biology have for the first time shown that they can control the behavior of monkeys by using pulses of blue light to very specifically activate particular brain cells. The findings represent a key advance for optogenetics, a state-of-the-art method for making causal connections between brain activity and behavior. Based on the discovery, the researchers say that similar light-based mind control could likely also be made to work in humans for therapeutic ends. Quote, we are the first to show that optogenetics can alter the behavior of monkeys, says Vim Van Duffel of Massachusetts General Hospital and KU Leuven Medical School. This opens the door to the use of optogenetics at a large scale in primate research and to start developing optogenetic-based therapies for humans. James, we've noted both on these episodes and also New World Next Week that the future is here. It certainly is, and you couldn't have had a more apt uh, picture to illustrate that than that scene from Clockwork Orange with, uh, what is it, the Ludovico technique? Yeah, um, for anyone out there who the, the even the phrase light-based mind control doesn't send shivers down your spine, what, what could you possibly be thinking? I think it's self-evident how disgusting and horrible and icky this is. But uh, having said that, one of the most disappointing things for me personally is the fact that science seems hell-bent on taking all of these interesting philosophical questions that have been around for thousands of years and reducing them to uh, to just plain old uh, you know genetics and experiments and things like that so do, do humans have free will well not if we can shine the right blue light beams in their eyes apparently 
And and surely we could extrapolate that out to the Aurora shooter situation and and all that that surrounds. But we'll not go there right now, James. <laughs> we are we're going through foodworldorder.com, and we generally will do it chronologically. So there's a, an amazing post, and it comes by way of the realfoodchannel.com, and it's called Twinkies versus Carrots. Food policy influences dietary choices. So why is it cheaper to buy a Twinkie than a carrot? How do food subsidies and agricultural policies affect the foods we eat? How is that tied to food-related diseases? So in the clip, which we'll implore you to go check out, Michael Pollan, journalist, of course, you know, well-noted author. Instead of playing that clip for you right now, I found a, a different piece to maybe help, you know, break this down a little more from the 9billion.com. Most of us know by now that eating too many Twinkies is unhealthy. Additionally, with 39 ingredients made into one little snack cake, it should cost considerably more than a carrot you simply grow and pull up out of the ground, right? Not so fast. I'm about to bring up farm subsidies, but don't run away. It's actually quite interesting. You fell asleep in economics class, but the comparison of the price of a carrot to the price of a Twinkie. The gist of it is that back in the 1940s when farms were family businesses, the government gave them tax dollars to help their crop production through poverty, drought, and other conditions that were putting them at risk of going out of business. Over time, many farms went from family businesses to large corporations, with those who created the large amount of crops receiving the most amount of subsidies. Eventually, only 4% of farms were receiving more than half of the subsidized dollars. That sounds imbalanced. It's because it is. The highly subsidized farms grow large amounts of corn, which is used to create cornmeal, corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup, corn flour, corn starch, partially hydrogenated corn oil, and many other ingredients used in cheap processed foods such as Twinkies. Out of the 39 ingredients in a Twinkie, 12 of them are subsidized. This means you and, and I, at least in the states, the taxpayers, have essentially paid for the production of the Twinkie even before buying it at the store. These subsidies are part of the reason why it's so cheap to eat so badly. Nearly one-third of a Twinkie's ingredients are subsidized, while a carrot yanked from the ground has zero subsidized ingredients. James? As a Canadian, I find it interesting how often Twinkies are referenced in American pop culture, and uh, I'm sure we can get them in Canada, but I honestly don't know if I've ever eaten one in my entire life, and um, I'm quite proud about that. But no, of course, we have our share of uh, different uh, junk food products. So uh, it, it is the same thing that happens over and over, that the uh, the worst products for you are the cheapest, and uh, there's definitely a link between one's uh, ability to purchase healthy food and one's... Uh, uh, health levels. I mean, it's it's no big uh, secret here. People who are rich tend to be healthier and fitter. And so um, it's, a, it's a pretty bizarre situation and one that really hasn't existed like this in human history before. But what else can we rely on but government intervention to make the worst foods cheaper? Yay. So that, I mean, that really seems to be the battle, you know, of, you know, people on social networks and, and things talking about, you know, food and subsidies and junk food versus, you know, healthier, organic, local, raw, in-season kind of foods. People going, oh, but it's it's just so expensive to eat organic. You just basically have to say, well, you can you can pay a little more now or you can pay a hell of a lot more later, not only financially, but but physically. And I'll use this opportunity, James, to say today is day 18 of quitting smoking for myself. 
and it is one day at a time, but today has been fantastic. Once you get out and get out in the world and start eating right and, and exercising, which I'll readily admit weren't two of my strongest suits, but I, I'm, I'm going to keep at it. There is no, oh, I'm trying to quit smoking. I have quit smoking. I'm just trying to now deal with the aftermath of it, James. Awesome. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. And uh, absolutely, it can be, uh, I'm sure it can be pretty difficult at first, but uh, uh, just hang in there. I think you're doing great so far. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And again, I, I appreciate all the help and all the amazing advice that, you know, that, that folks have sent to me. And I'll even throw it out again. If you've, you've got advice, mediamonarchy at gmail.com. So I am coming to you from Portland, Oregon, and there's been a, quite the large food-related story based in Oregon. And the fact that it is in Oregon, I think, but you know, my girlfriend and I both, it blows our minds that this is in Oregon. Criminalizing permaculture. State ownership over all rainwater. That's right, man sentenced to 30 days in jail for collecting rainwater. There's nothing more refreshing than standing in a cool summertime rain shower, bathing in the warm sunlight on a crisp spring day, or inhaling cool autumn air, fresh with the scent of turning leaves and pine needles. These things, rainwater, sunlight, air, have long been assumed to not only be free, but unclaimable. You can't claim to own the sunlight that falls on my front yard, for example. A corporation can't claim intellectual property ownership over the air that you breathe and demand you pay a royalty for inhaling. But... Jackson County, Oregon, says it owns your rainwater, and the county is sentenced to man to 30 days in jail and fined him over $1,500 for the supposed crime of collecting rainwater on his own property. The man's name is Gary Harrington, and he owns over 170 acres of land in Jackson County. On that land, he has three ponds, and those ponds collect rainwater that falls on his land. Common sense would say Gary has every right to have ponds with water on his 170 acres of land, but common sense has all but been abandoned in the state of Oregon. Much like California, Oregon is increasingly becoming a collectivist state. You didn't build that. The government built that. You don't own that. The government owns that. That rainwater that just fell on your land, that's the government's rainwater. And you're going to go to jail if you try and steal from the government, as, you know, the famous button or pin says, you know, don't steal. The government hates competition. That's the explanation from Jackson County officials who initially granted Harrington's permits to build ponds back in 2003. Yes, in Oregon, you actually need to beg for permission from the government just to have a pond on your own land. But the state of Oregon revoked his permits a few years later after he had already created the ponds, thus putting Harrington in the position of being a water criminal who was stealing rainwater from the state. Tom Paul, administrator of the Oregon Water Resources Department, is an obedient water Nazi. He insists, quote, Oregon law that says all of the water in the state of Oregon is public water, and if you want to use that water, either to divert it or to store it, you have to acquire a water right from the state of Oregon before doing that activity. We include below this posting other related notes, you know, asking the question, who owns the rain? Well, apparently it's not the homeowners, James. Well, we we have been talking about this issue uh, of protest for the last couple of weeks here on the program and what, what is effective protest and how people can protest. Well, if there are any listeners out there in Jackson County, uh, this is a call. This is a time, I think, that protest can be effective. Just the simple civil disobedience of collecting rainwater and uh, doing it en masse and, you know, making the government try to come in and, and act like the tyrants that they are and telling you you can't do it. I think this is a great time, time to defy those orders because exactly as 
we don't uh, we don't not murder people because the government says not to murder people. We don't murder people because it is wrong to murder people, and we don't uh, we don't cower in fear and and oh we can't collect rainwater because the government says we can't collect rainwater. We collect rainwater if we want to because that's a natural inherent property of being a person on this planet. So this is a time I think civil disobedience is uh, is a pretty good idea, and uh, I, it just blows my mind that this is happening in Oregon. Meanwhile, and I haven't actually posted anything about this yet, uh, two weeks ago there was basically an E. coli problem in the water reservoir that affected the the northwest part of the city of Portland. My girlfriend got sick, and we knew we could track it by the time she got sick and knew exactly where she had gotten lunch when she was out in work in the northwest and knew the food came from right there and even filled her water bottle while in the northwest. They waited 48 hours before issuing the warning. By that point, of course, it was way too late and it didn't matter. Anybody that was going to get sick was already sick. So it's another, you know, bureaucratic example of all these, you know, selectively enforced ideals. Uh, an interesting note, we, again, we discovered recently that famous actress Kim Novak, who you might remember from Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, she lives in this town she lives in eagle point oregon with her veterinarian husband i'd love to see someone like her who could have uh, of course grab headlines if she came out in in support of this so perhaps i'll I'll have to do some outreach there and figure out maybe who her veterinarian husband is please do i i would love to hear an interview with her i love i love vertigo yeah well that's a media monarchy note (laughs) (laughs) Uh, James, our next post is about Milk Wars, the latest battlefront in food freedom. Um, what do you know about this one, James? Um, I wrote it, um, <laughs> but I'd like to hear someone else read my words. Go ahead. For centuries, the image of the family farmer has been as iconic a piece of Americana as baseball and apple pie. Rugged and independent, the farmer still represents in the minds of many of those true ideals of American individualism that the country was based on with Thomas Jefferson's ideal of the yeoman farmer providing for him the ideal citizen for the fledgling American public. Even now, after the virtual extinction of the family farm model in the corporate agribusiness paradigm, long after the American population shifted from predominantly rural and agrarian to predominantly urban and corporate, there's still the ideal of the farmer, dedicated to a life of hard, honest work, growing the food upon which we all rely. What an indictment of modern-day America, then, that sits by while a federal agency appoints itself over the remaining few organic family farmers, presuming to come between these farmers and their customers, telling people what they can and cannot eat, even raiding farms that dare to resist, with drawn guns. Although the recent Rawsome food raids have gathered and garnered, rather, national and even international attention for their senseless violence and the in-your-face nature of the armed FDA operation, these raids were by no means the first such raids conducted by the FDA in the name of keeping the world safe from raw milk. In 2006, police officers and agricultural officials involved in a sting operation arrested Gary and Don Oaks of Double O Farms on suspicion of selling raw milk. Some of the shareholders in the Oaks cow share program were physically restrained at the scene, kept from achieving the milk from their own cows, and repeatedly told to shut up and stay out of the way while officers browbeat Gary, who was later sent to the hospital. In 2008, six Pennsylvania state troopers and a Pennsylvania DOA official, Department of Agriculture, 
trespassed onto the farm of Mark Nolt, a winger Mennonite dairyman, confiscated over $20,000 worth of his product and equipment, and forcibly arresting Mr. Nolt for selling raw milk without a license. In 2010, Bloomington raw milk consumer Ray Lynn Sandvig had her home raided by police and was threatened with prosecution by the Minnesota Department of Agriculture for acting as a distribution point for raw milk from a local farmer. Many other such incidents continue to take place across the United States, often in localities like California, where the sale of raw milk is perfectly legal. So the related note, James, one of the more recent raids, raw milk advocate, a guy named James Stewart, was seized by armed bounty hunters driving unmarked vehicles with no plates. Who's the criminal? Yeah, exactly. Well, I, as far as I'm aware, James Stewart is actually involved with that Rossum Foods uh, incident. So, um, unfortunately, just continues to keep hounding him, I guess, because uh, he dares to stand up for the idea that people should be allowed to drink raw milk if they want to. And again, even if the point is that you believe personally that it's uh, un- harmful and potentially dangerous, well, what, what does what right do you have to tell other people not to do that? So, especially with armed FDA agents real willing to throw people in jail for the the crime of trying to drink raw milk. Oh, what a terrible thing. Well, okay, we're running out of time here and coming up against the break, so let's take a short breather. For those following along along at foodworldorder.com, we have a couple more stories to get to and the binge and purge. So we're going to talk at triple speed in the next segment as we're talking to James Evan Pilato. Once again, his website's foodworldorder.com, mediamonarchy.com, newworldnextweek.com, cyberspacewar.com, holyhexes.com. He's also on Twitter at mediamonarchy. I'm James Corbett of corbettreport.com. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back after these messages. All right, friends, we are running out of time here on Corbett Report Radio as we're talking about the latest food and health and environment headlines on foodworldorder.com. So let's get straight into the last couple of stories here and then the binge and purge that's posted right now at the top of foodworldorder.com. James, take it. Uh, we just want to read these these first two kind of headlines into the record and, again, implore everybody to go out and, and follow these sources and, and do more research yourself. Bill Gates leveraged philanthropy, corporate profit versus humanity, and, again, from Cryptagon, digestible microchips embedded in drugs. Good God, help us all. What I wanted to blast right into, James, and this is what is the top several links at the top of the binge and purge, London Smog, Digital Health, and more, because we were just talking about raw milk and the freedom to eat what you want or what you don't want to eat. Either we're free or we're not. There's no kind of in-between that they're trying to shoehorn us in. The most amazing story that still boggles the mind here, Chick-fil-A leaps into controversy. It, James, it even now has its own Wikipedia entry, the 2012 Chick-fil-A same-sex marriage controversy. So basically, the long and short of it is Chick-fil-A is a Christian organization. They always have been. They've made no secret about it. The president said, well, we, you know, we believe the biblical definition of marriage as being a man and a woman. And now it's turned into the big, phony, left-right, blah, blah a couple of days ago, they had basically supporters of Chick-fil-A all go give their support and all go to Chick-fil-A as a boycott, if you will. Now the latest I've seen, Chick-fil-A protesters to hold a kiss in, which again, sounds like a great idea. That's really going to win lots of people over to your cause. So basically, same-sex couples going to Chick-fil-A and, and making out. It's another bandwagon, James. 
it's a way different kind of story, but it just seems exactly the same as the Coney bandwagon. Anything that we can kind of jump on and get so involved in emotionally, and it's all over the social networks, and it's all over F-Book and all of those things. But again, as you said during the break, you know, meanwhile in Syria, there are so many more important things going on. I would ultimately say, you know, if you want to eat waffle fries, if you support Chick-fil-A, do it. If you don't, don't go there. As I always quote that Simpsons episode with regards to advertising and media, just don't look. If you don't want it, don't look, and it'll probably go away. It's, I, it's Exactly. They, they feed into it, and they make it more of a thing by drawing attention to it. I mean, the best thing you can do uh, if you want something to go away is to ignore it. But at, at any rate, uh, the, the kiss-ins and the buy and all of this is just total distraction from real issues. And once again, it is just a question of, uh, well, no one's forcing you to eat there, and no one's forcing you not to eat there. So what difference does that make on the bigger scheme of things? Absolutely nothing. I saw an interesting uh, comment on Reddit uh, recently about this, talking about how if you actually care about this, why, why instead of uh, you know choosing to buy a, a chicken fillet burger or choosing not to buy one, why don't you go and and donate that money that you were going to spend on that sandwich to a, a, ch- a homeless uh, charity or something like that, where you can actually do something productive and and make some kind of mark? And once again, I think that's the uh, the type of activism and protest that I like to see is people diverting, even if it's a stupid issue and it's a distraction issue, you can make it into something important by diverting attention towards something that is important. And uh, and doing something productive and constructive, but anyway, this is uh, the soap opera type of uh, newscape oh. land- landscape that we inhabit, unfortunately. And hopefully, this uh, program and programs like this are the antidote uh, that will hopefully start to change that equation. And more and more people are tuning into this and turning turning away from the stupid distractions that are going on. And that is the hope. So. James Evan Pilato, MediaMonarchy.com is the flagship site. I hope people will go there and check out all the latest. James, thanks again for your time and for putting all this together. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, too. All right. Well, that's it for the Thursday night edition of this broadcast. Tomorrow night we'll be back to wrap things up for the week. I'll be talking about uh, about something completely different, so I'll leave it uh, to you to tune in tomorrow night to find out about that. But then uh, next week we already have a couple of guests lined up, Eric Reitzer and uh, Dan Dix and others, so stay tuned for that. Until tomorrow night, thank you all for listening and take care. <laughs>